Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Well, the state of emergency is ending, and the province of Ontario is reopening, but not all at once. The government has outlined a three-stage process for reopening, but at least the golfers will finally be happy. It's Tuesday, May 25th, 2021, so let's get to it. Well, JMM, have you played a round of golf yet? I'll tell you, Steve, it's like COVID-19 never happened. I've played exactly as many rounds of golf as I normally would have if this weren't a pandemic. <laughs> okay. I, so that means zero. I guess Zero, you. Okay. correct. It's a nice round <laughs> number, fittingly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can happily point out now that Ontario is no longer the only jurisdiction in North America forbidding people from playing golf. Uh, there's quite a bit of detail to get through here. So let's do this stage by stage by stage. Start off by telling us, as of this past Saturday morning, what is now allowed that was previously off limits? Uh, lots of things have reopened. Uh, basically, a lot of the outdoor amenities that were closed uh, in April uh, have now reopened. So that's basketball courts and baseball diamonds. And, uh, you know, I, I will say that uh, uh, I definitely saw some civil disobedience in Toronto's uh, parks and playgrounds last week uh, that, you know, I think people were playing some illegal baseball uh but those are now legal again and uh, marinas well, are remember launch- john michael stealing is part of baseball right <laughs> stealing base has always theft and crime have always been part of baseball anyway i've interrupted go ahead uh, <laughs> I, I, I knew it was dangerous even to raise the topic of baseball. Um, marinas are allowed to launch boats again and can serve food for takeout, uh, something that will mean uh, a great deal in some parts of the province. Um, BMX and skate parks are allowed again. Uh, and, you know, I was reading the regulation when they made it public on uh, Thursday, and I had to laugh at this bit. Uh, as of May 22nd, 2021, uh, it is legal to operate ski hills, snowmobile trails, and tobogganing hills once more. Here, here. Oh, that's great news. Okay. Well, now that leads us to the three stages by which the province will be reopened. And let's go through them one by one. Stage one includes what? The emphasis in stage one is still very much on outdoor activities, uh, but, you know, some things become possible. Uh, Outdoor gatherings of 10 people, uh, outdoor dining of four people per table, Uh, Outdoor fitness classes and personal training, uh, those become legal. Uh, Non-essential retail, uh, that's, you know, retailers who aren't, you know, food or pharmacies or the LCBO, uh, they're still under some uh, serious constraints. They can only have about 15% of their normal capacity indoors, uh, and malls are still closed. Uh, But campsites and campgrounds do open up in stage one. And what has to happen before we can actually begin the stage one reopening? The province wants at least 60% of the adult population uh, having had their first shot, uh, and they want some of the major public health indicators all looking good, Uh, things like uh, low numbers of new cases and ICU capacity looking much better than it does right now. Uh, That 60% vaccination threshold, uh, if we haven't already reached it as of Tuesday morning, we, we will very shortly. Well, I'm not sure the low case count is where we want it to be right now, because towards the end of last week, we were still up around, well, anywhere from 2,000 to 2,500 a day. So when does the province estimate 
better case counts, better vaccination rates? When do they estimate that could all happen? Uh, you're right that uh, the the average, uh, the seven day moving average that we've been looking at basically for you know sixteen months or whatever now um, is uh, is still ab- about two thousand uh, new cases. Uh, they want to see that come down substantially, and they are sort of. Uh, tentatively scheduling uh, June 14th or the week of June 14th uh, as the time that uh, stage one could begin. And presumably, if we if we flatten the curve sooner than that, it's possible we could go into stage one sooner than that? In theory, I guess it is possible, but uh, I, I wouldn't expect it to be much earlier, uh, you know, if, if cases simply drop through the basement and, you know, we're at zero new cases or something like that, then they might move sooner. But um, I I certainly wouldn't expect much more than a week early. Gotcha. Okay, that's stage one. What's in stage two? Uh, Stage two, again, the emphasis is still very much on outdoor activities, but uh, indoor retail does get to expand its capacity slightly to 25%. Uh, Personal care services, uh, where people can wear masks the entire time, uh, which means haircuts, folks. (laughs) Uh, Those become legal in stage two. Uh, Outdoor theaters, water parks, amusement parks, uh, those kinds of things can reopen, uh, as well as overnight summer camps. And again, if everything goes according to Hoyle, that would put the stage two reopening when? Sometime in July? The government says that they won't be moving any faster through these phases than uh, at three-week intervals. They want to give plenty of time to make sure that nothing goes badly wrong when they start reopening. Uh, So if we do, in fact, enter stage one on June 14th, uh, that gets us to stage two by July 5th. And we know that the premier uh, has already said that they're hoping summer camps will be able to reopen in early July. So that more or less tracks. Uh, But there is uh, another vaccination uh, benchmark that we need to hit. uh, That is uh, 70% of adults with one shot and 20% uh, with their second shots. So a ways to go before we hit that. All right, that's stage two. Stage three, that reopening would include what? You know, this is where the indoor stuff really starts to reopen. Uh, Indoor dining with some limits, indoor movie theaters, indoor religious services at higher capacities, museums, zoos, aquariums, uh, all of the things I'm going to be boring my daughter with this uh, summer. (laughs) Uh, We start to have a lot more options. Uh, And the government uh, does have another benchmark, though. Uh, They want uh, up to 80% of adults vaccinated with their first doses and 25% with their second doses uh, before we get to stage three. And again, presuming we continue to flatten the curve and there's no fourth eruption of COVID-19, that would presumably put the stage three reopening late July, early August, something like that? If we spend no more than 21 days in each of these uh, uh, previous stages, uh, my count of 42 days from June 14th makes it uh, July 26th. Uh, So you could, in theory, uh, see a lot of things reopen for the August long weekend, for example. Okay. Uh, A few more follow-up questions here. Do we know whether this conforms to exactly what the government's so-called science table of advisors is advising, or do we think the cabinet is freelancing a bit here? Steve, freelancing from the cabinet? I'm I'm shocked you would even suggest something like that. (laughs) You sound like Claude Rains in Casablanca right now, but anyway, moving on. Shocked to discover there's gambling going on here. (laughs) Exactly. Um, 
based on the modeling we saw on Thursday uh, and, you know, the consistent advice from the science table on, uh, for example, the safety of outdoor activities, you know, I think it's fair to say this plan largely conforms to their advice. And um, we haven't always been able to say that about things that come out of cabinet. Um, given past events, I think, uh, you know, I certainly heard from a lot of people on Twitter that uh, worry the government will be tempted to reopen things too soon and risk uh, a rebound in new cases. And, you know, that is uh, uh, an epidemiological possibility, uh, despite the high rates of vaccination that we're seeing. Uh, but, you know, the modeling showed that uh, reopening in early June presented uh, a risk of the rebound. And, you know, for now, the premier and the government have decided not to chance it. They are pushing that reopening to the middle of June. Uh, and, you know, the premier says it's specifically because of uh, the modeling advice that they received. Well, it's interesting the the premier and his cabinet and government are being super cautious on all of this. And it, it just reminded me when you said it looks like August before movie theaters will be open. It reminds me that for the Agenda TV show, I interviewed Alice Jacob, who's the president and CEO of Cineplex. Only 1,600 screens across the country, uh, you know, thousands of employees. And, you know, he felt pretty comfortable when I interviewed him over a month ago that they were going to see theaters open by June. But apparently that's not going to happen, is it? Uh, not based on the plan we saw uh, on Thursday, and I believe there's always been already been some uh, pretty, uh, let's say, spirited and negative reaction uh, from mm. uh, some uh, business groups who are, are left out of uh, stages one and two. Um, and you know, I, I understand it's been a really hard year for everybody, including uh, business owners. Uh, but as you say, this is the government being very, very cautious. Mm -hmm. All right. One of the biggest questions that went unaddressed at the government's announcement last week was, what is the fate of our public education system? Now, admittedly, there's only about six weeks or so left in the school year. But is there any indication yet as to whether or not the schools might reopen, even if only for a few weeks? Uh, no clear indication yet. The uh the modeling table had suggested that uh, reopening schools even in mid-June, uh, might cause a 6 to 11% increase in daily new infections. Uh, I mean, what's interesting is that uh, Dr. Edelstein Brown uh, from the University of Toronto did present that potential increase as possibly manageable, uh, given some of the other things that are working in our favor in Ontario right now. Um, but uh, the Premier says he doesn't want to risk it. Basically, um, the... Uh, for whatever reason, the government is being super cautious, as we've said <laughs> repeatedly already now, and uh, does not want to risk that that uh, increase. And uh, so for now, uh, schools are going to stay closed. Well, okay, let me, how do I do this? I, I'm, not, I'm not second guessing anybody here, right? They're the deciders. They have to make the decisions. I'm just going to ask some questions here. We know from empirically provable evidence that COVID-19, thankfully, um, seems not to be fatal in young people. Young people go to school. The explanation I had always heard to date was we can't have the schools open and the kids getting infected, even though it's extremely unlikely anybody's going to die from it in the schools because the kids could get infected, bring the stuff home and infect their parents. But we've now got more than half the parents vaccinated with at least one vaccine. So the chances of that happening are much lower. 
Am, am, am I asking ridiculous questions here, or is there a path to this that, that uh, is being unaddressed as we speak? You know, one of the um, hardest things to, I don't know, distinguish in the pandemic has been the difference between um, a, a public health indicator and a person's own like personal safety, right? So the fact that you might have uh, your first shot of a vaccine obviously gives you some protection. Uh, but even people who are not uh, individually protected by a vaccine dose uh, are more protected when lots of other people uh, also have uh, that vaccine. And so, you know, we talk about like the safety of schools and obviously teachers want to be vaccinated. And frankly, at this point, you know, we even want if we had enough vaccines to do it, we would we would want uh, teenage high school students to be vaccinated too, right? Everybody over uh, 12 and over. Um, and that would give everybody a lot of confidence and a, and a lot of measures uh, of, of safety. But uh, if case counts are falling, schools are also safer, right? Um, if case counts are falling because uh, lots and lots of people are vaccinated, even if every individual teacher and every individual high school student is not vaccinated, then people are safer. Obviously, that doesn't end the argument um, in the same way that, uh, you know, well, frankly, none of these arguments ever end. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, I, I do think it's, it's you know, worth considering, uh, you know, when we talk about the safety of schools, we are not uh, simply talking about whether uh, every teacher who wants a vaccine has had one yet. Well, I, I raise these questions because I did have a conversation this past week with someone who's been on the provincial education scene for probably half a century, and she only wanted to speak on background here, doesn't want to make a fuss, but but raised some interesting questions. She was adamant that reopening the schools, even if only for a few weeks, was absolutely imperative. And interestingly enough, JMM, it had nothing to do with academics. Her <laughs> argument was strictly for mental health reasons, for socialization reasons, kids need to be back with kids. And now that the majority of adults in the province have had at least one vaccination shot, she says we can and should do this, even if it means holding classes outdoors out of concerns about old ventilation systems, for example. Kids need to be back in school. And that is apparently not the provincial government's plan right now. Um, I don't I mean, I haven't seen it, but have you picked up any indication as to whether the province is prepared to revisit this decision before the school year is out? Certainly nothing uh, public, nothing that they uh, they gave no sign of it at uh, the media avail on Thursday. You know, the, the premier did make uh, an allegation uh, that uh, teachers unions had uh, threatened an injunction uh, if they were uh, forced to go back to in-class learning, uh, you know, uh, it may not be obvious to all of our listeners, but like a, a teacher's union can't actually just get an injunction. They have to go argue for one in front of a judge and the judge is going to weigh things like, you know, the, the government's right to set education policy, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, I'll just say I'm skeptical of that claim from the premier and move on. Um, but the other thing he said is that uh, he wants consensus on reopening. And, you know, there are both uh, medical and political reasons why he may not get consensus, right? There are doctors in this province right now who are saying that reopening schools is a pathway to a fourth wave and, you know, bringing the hospital system back to the brink of collapse. Uh, there are, you know, we, we 
We don't have to credit every single accusation made against the teachers' unions, but I think it's fair to say that there are also political reasons why the premier might not get uh, the consensus he's looking for. Um, but you know, <laughs> when has Ontario ever had consensus in his education system? <laughs> you know, uh, he might just actually have to make the decision. I know the answer to that question, and the answer is never. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it works in a democracy. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk vaccines. As we just indicated, a significant chunk of the population now has one shot. Uh, we hear a lot about these huge number of AstraZeneca doses that are in the freezer somewhere waiting for their fate to be determined. Is the province any closer to a decision on whether that supply can be used for people's second dose? You know, I told somebody on Twitter that I would shut up about this issue if the government made its decision by the end of the week, and they did. Uh, so now I have to break that promise and talk about it just a little bit more on this podcast. <laughs> um, yes, uh, on Friday morning, uh, Dr. David Williams announced that uh, people who had received their first dose of a vaccine uh, in the form of an AstraZeneca shot uh, between March 10th and March 19th of this year uh, will be eligible to receive their second dose as an AstraZeneca shot uh, next week. Uh, so uh, two important things here. One, uh, this is going to hopefully uh, use up the uh, I've heard differing uh, numbers, but between 45 and 55,000 doses of AstraZeneca that we have on hand that were uh, in, in danger of uh, expiring and you know, going to waste unused. Um, the other important thing to note for our listeners, uh, some of whom, uh, like you, may have gotten the AstraZeneca shot, uh, is that this is a slightly shorter um, interval between the first and second shot than is the the recommended dose. Uh, for AstraZeneca, the recommended uh, dose interval was always 12 weeks. And so uh, this is going to be something more like 10 weeks. And so that's, that's slightly shorter. Uh, Dr. Williams and uh, Dr. Dirk Heyer uh, both said that, you know, this is not going to massively compromise the uh, effectiveness of the vaccine. Uh, and so if people uh, want to get their uh, second shot as an AstraZeneca shot, uh, people who, who were at the sort of the front of the line uh, almost three months ago now uh, will now be eligible. You know, as you said those dates, March 10th and March 19th, the dates within which people got their first shots, I started to think to myself, I know I got my first jab in March, but I can't remember what date. I'm going to have to go back to the calendar and see if I am, in fact, uh, eligible for the second dose of AZ because my first dose was AZ. So, okay, thank you for that. I'm going to check that after we're done here. Now, it wouldn't, of course, be a Doug Ford news conference if he didn't take a poke at the prime minister and urge him to tighten up the borders. And of course, that happened. Just a reminder, we are not being critical of the premier for suggesting the borders ought to be tightened up. Epidemiologists say the borders probably should be tightened up to ensure that the variants of concern don't penetrate the province more than they already have. And we point this out because science also tells us that Overseas travel accounts for about 10% of the positive test cases we're experiencing, and yet the Premier seems to focus 90% of his attention on, here's how we're going to fight COVID-19 energy, rather than the many other things that might actually work more effectively. It's pretty obvious that naked politics are at play here, and the word has gone out that we're almost at you know, T minus one year and counting until the next election. So it's a good time to start fighting with the federal liberals, even if it means taking tens of thousands of dollars of PC party ads out. Anyway, <laughs> lest I get on a rant here, is there any indication that the federal government is prepared to re-examine the status of overseas flights, particularly from COVID-19 hotspots such as India or Brazil, for example? 
Before I answer your question, I do want to add one other sort of wrinkle to this that I think is, is worth our listeners keeping in mind that, you know, Doug Ford is wrong about the salience of the border right now. Uh, but as we get more and more people vaccinated and as uh, domestic community spread of COVID-19 uh, shrinks, and that's obviously what we're all hoping will happen as we vaccinate more and more people, the border will actually become a more important part of this story as we go from, uh, you know, basically just trying to get our own house in order to having a mostly vaccinated uh, population that we're just primarily trying to protect from new variants of concern. Um, We're not there yet. And it's not like you can sort of retroactively make what the premier is saying correct. Um, But, you know, trying to think a few steps ahead in this pandemic, which unfortunately will last long after it's under control here in Canada. Um, that was just one one thing I wanted to sort of say. Uh, mm-hmm. Your question about uh, flights from India or Brazil. Uh, the government has, uh, the federal government, I should say, uh, has extended the current prohibition on direct flights from India and Pakistan uh, until June 21st. This was a measure that was brought in earlier this year when uh, India started to go through uh, its latest really, um, really tragic uh, wave of uh, COVID-19. Uh, you know, <laughs> lots of people will say this is an imperfect measure. It uh, only really bans direct flights. You can still fly to a third country from India and then fly into Canada. Uh, but that is the current policy. Uh, the, another current policy, the um, closure of the U.S. border to non-essential travel uh, has also been extended into June. Uh, these are both just maintaining the existing policies. These are not changing anything. So we haven't really seen uh, much sign that Ottawa sees any kind of urgent need uh, to change much at either uh, the land border crossings or the airports. And apropos of your comment that the uh, province's position on this, uh, how to put this, uh, maybe more about political science than uh, epidemiological science, um, (laughs) the Angus Reid Research Organization uh, has just come out with some fresh surveys, some fresh polling indicating that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau now has a 43% approval rating. Uh, That is up two points from April. Uh, But uh, maybe more significantly, it's uh, more than twice as popular as Doug Ford's numbers in Ontario. Uh, The federal government as a whole has a 50% approval rating on handling the pandemic, uh, which we probably don't need to remind our listeners is um, a substantially higher approval rating than what Ontario's government uh, had the last time we pulled it. Well, let me build a little bit on that as well, because we might point out that the same survey has got the federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh with a 46% approval rating, which is even a little ahead of Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, The Conservative Party leader, Aaron O'Toole, has just a 27% approval rating. And I only mention these numbers because we know that traditionally in Ontario politics, there is from time to time a lot of spillover between the popularity or unpopularity of the federal parties and their leaders onto the provincial scene. So presumably, this is good news for the provincial liberals, the provincial New Democrats, not so much for the provincial Tories. The other thing that I think uh, comes to mind is certainly looking at those numbers for Aaron O'Toole is that uh, the current leader of the Conservative Party uh, may now be the second one in a row to wish that somebody else were Premier of Ontario right now. (laughs) Well, but as I always mention, and in the interest of fairness, right, polls are a great indication of what people thought yesterday. They're not predictive. They don't tell you what people are going to think tomorrow. And I well remember when he was Premier of Ontario, Bob Ray's line, when people always said to them, Here's what the polls say. What do you think? He would say, I'm in the business of trying to change polls, right? Yes. So campaigns change polls. 
Policy changes polls. Good news changes polls. So does bad news. So <laughs> yes, everybody take a chill lately. pill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes as we do every week. Uh, we're going to have that for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell us what you like or didn't. Either way, it lets others know about this podcast and perhaps puts it on their radar screens as well. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week. Now, JMM, I think the easy quote of the week would have been Premier Ford's challenging Quebec Premier Francois Legault to a bet on the Maple Leafs Canadiens playoff series. So I'm not going there. That's just way too easy. <laughs> Instead, uh, you and I have both decided to focus on the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And I have to say, one of these quotes she may like and the other one, not so much. Let's start with the not so much. Andrea Horvath, look at, let's just say it. She's received a lot of compliments on this podcast in previous episodes for using her bully pulpit as opposition leader to highlight issues she thinks the government has screwed up on, whether it's a lack of a paid sick day program or getting teachers vaccinated so we can reopen schools or getting more help for tenants or whatever, myriad issues. But Ms. Horvath had a significant announcement to make last week in calling for a full-blown judicial inquiry into the province's handling of COVID-19. She's promised to do it if she forms the next government. Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, heard it. He's promised to do the same thing. And when she came out into the South Lawn of Queen's Park to make that announcement, she simply botched it. She messed up a name of a couple of her MPPs who were with her at the announcement. She forgot the critic portfolio for one of those MPPs. And then when it came time to announce the full-blown inquiry into COVID-19, well, she got that wrong too. Have a listen. We have the critic for, um, now I'm forgetting one of them. Oh, Laura May Lindo, the critic for uh, anti-racism. And I, for, I didn't mention Utila Carpoche, uh, who is our critic for, uh, for uh, childcare and early learning. That's why today we're calling for a full judicial inquiry into long-term care or sorry, inquiry into the entire response of this government uh, to, uh, to COVID-19. Now, pollster Greg Lyle told us last week on this podcast that unlike in most election cycles, people are actually paying attention now, a year before the next election. The New Democrats are the so-called government-in-waiting, right? They're the official opposition. They're only 23 seats shy of a majority government. They need to convey competence at the very least, and that announcement didn't do it. Okay. Having said that, JMM, what have you got? My quote of the week is, as we say, also from Andrea Horvath. And uh, let's say it's a, it's a stronger performance. Uh, she was speaking last Thursday after the province's reopening announcement. And she was asked by uh, CP reporter Sean Jeffords about the premier's claim that he needs a consensus on uh, reopening schools. Uh, and here's what she said. I mean, I think it's balderdash. The guy likes to talk out of his hat. And I think that's what came to the top of his mind when that question was asked. Um, you know, the, this pre who knows how this premier makes his decisions? I mean, let's face it, all the way along, uh, it's been, you know, a deep, dark secret of how, uh, in terms of how Doug Ford makes his decisions. That's NDP leader Andrew Horvath. And uh, Steve, I'm going to confess, I picked this clip almost entirely because of the use of the word balderdash. Poppycock, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was episode 113 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, editing from Donnie Swanson, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>